So welcome everyone. This is our third virtual Meet the Star Scholar event. This is organized by the Strategic Management Division of the AOM. My name is Denisa Mindruta. I'm an executive committee member this year. And it is my pleasure to um, introduce you today, Professor Joe Mahoney. Joe, thank you so much for accepting our invitation. We want to focus on a number of research-related issues, but also to broaden the conversation and really have you share your thoughts, insights, and valuable um, perspectives on how to live life as a scholar in strategic management. Uh, before I um, invite you to um, our conversation, let me give a preview to our guests so they, they know a little bit uh, more about you. So Joe, you are a professor of strategy, entrepreneurship and international business at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, the uh, College of Business and a Caterpillar Chair of Business. And you got your PhD in business economics from uh, Wharton, right? Um, I'm gonna follow the format that we use for the previous scholars, and I will focus on just a few um, of your accomplishments. You serve as an associate editor for the SMJ and AMR, and edited um, some special, very interesting special issues. Um, in terms of awards and recognition, I listed here only a few of them. Uh, you're a fellow of the Strategic Management Society, a member of the Academy of Management Fellows. You received the Irwin Outstanding Educator Award of the STR and a Campus Award for Excellence in Graduate Student Mentoring. We can see the pattern here, um, many awards related to your mentoring activity. You also serve on various roles at the AOM and SMS. Um, I just mentioned on the slide, uh, you've been a chair of the BPS division, officer of the um, Strategy Research Foundation. You publish over 100 articles and book chapters, and you have over 2,000 citations. Uh, you also wrote a book, which is very influential in, um, in, uh, in uh, uh, graduate, um, um, for, for graduate studies. The book is titled The Economic Foundations of Strategy. You, your community of current and former PhD students, which I'm proud of <laughs> being of, includes 87 names. Your research is on transaction costs, organizational forms, market friction, stakeholder theory, and growth of the firm. And I'm sure uh, there will be many questions about your current research. I should say that while looking at your CV, Joe, I. I noticed that you have 28 papers, um, working papers currently, uh, could be more than that. <laughs> and um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just amazed at how many things you, you accomplished. And it's, it's such a pleasure to have you here today. And I hope you can share with us um, the secrets of, uh, of being such an amazing scholar. So with that, um, why don't we start by uh, a question that um, we asked the other uh, guests as well, but also came up in uh, 
uh, when people registered uh, to um, to this um, virtual meeting, they, they, they had the opportunity to ask a question. So um, the first question was, why did you pursue a PhD in economics instead of other social sciences? And within the economics, how did you decide to focus on organizational economics? And um, before I let you uh, <laughs> answer the question, just want to remind everyone that we I'm gonna do a one-to-one -one conversation with Joe for about 45 minutes or so, we'll see how it goes. Uh, Joe um, can take even uh, longer than that, but then uh, we want to open the floor to uh, all of you so you can ask uh, your questions. Uh, so Joe, about your PhD now, <laughs> why economics and instead of other social sciences and why organizational economics? <laughs> So uh, I, I started uh, as an undergraduate in 1976 at the University of Pennsylvania. I, I grew up in Philadelphia and about 20 blocks from the school. Um, and when I first started there, my major was uh, chemistry, similar to a uh, former colleague, Janet Berkovitz, who studied chemistry at Berkeley. And uh, I, one of the things about the subject was that I, I was getting, I was getting, um, very good grades, but I really didn't know what I was talking about. Like, like a, there would be like 6.02 times 10 to the 23 molecules per mole, which I would get correctly, but I really didn't know what that meant. All I knew was that 10 to the 23rd power was a very large number. But, uh, but, but the, the thing about the subject was it, it was, uh, I, I think I do best when I connect abstract thoughts to, to the real world. And, and I was having trouble uh, connecting uh, chemistry, uh, of course, there were the experiments in the labs for the observables, but uh, when you first start out, you don't really get a chance for a lot of experiments. So it was very abstract to me. Uh, the second thing I found is when I was in the labs at night, I really disliked being alone in the labs. And so I, I really found that starting out as a chemistry major was not a good choice. At that point, I, I wanted to become a professor, but I just didn't know a professor of what. So I, uh, I next went to mathematics and I had uh, four semesters of calculus and that actually helped me get through the economics uh, program. But as I, would, I would never have made it without those four courses. And um, I remember in my fourth semester, I was on a track to get a PhD in math and I was with five other students. So only six people were, on, were in this course of the large University of Pennsylvania who wanted to get a PhD in math. And I do remember saying to one of the other kids in the class, uh, those four are gonna get their PhD in math, what are we gonna do? So it, it was very clear that they were at just a, a whole different level. And, and the interesting thing was uh, my professor gave me two grades. People think of me as being more abstract, but I got I got 100% on the on the calculations. What I, what I did not get was actually the abstractness of mathematics. So. And then, and then even in my head, there would be like you would you would you would take a cross section of something, and it would look like a football. And in my brain, nothing was happening at all. It didn't look like any, no synapses were firing whatsoever. And then there was also like Green's theorem and Stokes' theorem, and a whole bunch of other very abstract ideas that I really. So in some sense, it was a replication of my experience with chemistry. Is that once we started to get into the to the very abstract, where I couldn't hang my hat on something, I started to really struggle. So then I decided to get a PhD in history. So I took a history course. And then in my first 
history course at Penn, in 14 weeks, we had 14 books. And one of the books was uh, like Matthew Josephson's The Robber Barons, which was like several hundred pages. And so every week was like that. And so that was just like, like overwhelming uh, for me. So I, I decided right then that's not for me. And then I was very lucky that I, I took a course in economics. And, uh, and then when I read the Paul Samuelson book, uh, the introductory economics book, everything in the book resonated with me. Like, like for me, it was like everything was, it was, it was, it was abstract and it was a lots of, lots of fundamental principles in the book, but he was also very good at connecting them to, to the real world, which in, in some ways, I think the Paul Samuelson Econ 1 book is almost, almost like a, like a great book for, for strategy people to, to read, just in terms of the way he thinks and the way he's able to constantly toggle back between the abstract and the concrete. So that's really what, uh, really what resonated with me. Um, the organizational economics part came because uh, Williamson was still at the University of Pennsylvania when I was my first year in the doctoral program in economics. And uh, I happened to buy the book uh, markets and hierarchies while in the, because it was available in the University of Pennsylvania bookstore. And, uh, and then in, in some ways, uh, ver very few times in my life has this happened to me, but in the same way, the Samuelson book resonated with me the first time I read it as a undergraduate, that the Williamson book resonated with me. Okay, because although it was extraordinarily abstract, it was also definition of terms. So some, I know some say Williamson's not a good writer, but I, but I will in, in, in many ways disagree with that. It, it's, it's not easy reading, but it's extraordinarily well, all the terms are really well defined. And if you stick with it, it's, uh, it, it all makes sense and comes together uh, if you put in the effort. And so, um, so that, uh, that, and also the other thing about the Williamson, like Williamson many years later would talk about the meaning of his, of his work. And I put that on the, on the strategy uh, uh, webpage for, for his passing along with several others. I mean, and I think the quote that he, it was in a, he was interviewed one time and, and it was a 1990 book that it was published in. And it was just kind of comment was um, in terms of uh, bounded rationality and opportunism, he just said, uh, the spirit of his book is the world should not be ordered to the disadvantage of those who are more inclined to keep their promises. And so, and so in, in many ways, I, I, and I, I still feel to this day that the world is full of uh, foolishness and bounded rationality, some of which is my own, but uh, also observable all around us. And, um, and then also there's, you know, or, or as Shakespeare said, there, there's the fools and the knaves, right? And if you translate that, in, so it, spe it speaks to the human condition. And so bounded rationality was uh, sometimes dealing with the foolishness of uh, not being able to think things through. And the, uh, the knaves is the opportunism part. So, so, so to, to me, uh, although very abstract, it, it was speaking to the human condition. And it was, and, and as a matter of fact, it was speaking to me more as how do you provide governance for the vulnerable? And, and, and I can't think of a more important time than right now to be thinking about that. So the, so the logic of safeguards and the logic of good governance. Uh, so in a, in a very funny way, he, 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 he was a very shy man and he wrote in a very precise and, and not particularly uh, grabbing your passions right away. And, uh, and, and, and with that precision, uh, and, he, and he chose a phenomenon which is not particularly exciting and that's the make or buy decision. 
And yet you put all these things together and, and yet he was still an extraordinarily inspiring person for me. Because I, I think I, I, I captured in the first time I was reading his work, I, I captured the spirit of his work. And then all, and I also, what resonated with me also was the powerful logic of the book. So, and I think it was that combination. It, it was, uh, it, it, it touched me aesthetically in a way that probably maybe for others uh, might not capture that, but, but, and it also was extraordinarily logical and helped me make sense of the world. And I think it was that combination that brought me to organizational economics. Wow, that's an amazing story. I never, I never knew um, about your um, convoluted path towards, um, you know, um, doing, getting a PhD in organizational economics, but it's fascinating to see, I, I see this as a quest for understanding human condition. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, very, very interesting. Yeah. And the because 6 point, you- 6.02 times 10 to the third <laughs> molecules per mole really didn't do it. <laughs> well, that's a nature universe, of yeah. course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so because you mentioned Williamson, Joe, um, I would like to uh, ask the question of how did in Williamson influence your, your thinking in general, and in particular, um, your becoming a, a theorist. So in other words, um, what does it mean to be a theorist, and how did Williamson influence your thinking about um, I, I would say the, the interesting thing about becoming a theorist is you don't necessarily, you're not, in the same way that a, a, a person can hit 350 in baseball and not necessarily be a good teacher of hitting, I think in the same way you can be a good theorist without necessarily being able to articulate it well. I'm sure 10 years ago, if you asked me that question, I, I, I would say people call me a theorist and that's why I'm a theorist, but I, I wouldn't really be able to, to say why. Um, but but I, th I think now uh, in, in trying to think about that question over the last decade in particular, I, I think that one of the things we can learn for why Williamson is a good theorist is that he had a canonical problem as he called it. And his canonical problem was the theory of the firm or vertical integration. And then, and then his, his focus then was, was, was to be um, true to the dependent variable. That is, he had a lot of passion of reading in economics, law, organization, theory, and he was, uh, and elsewhere, and he was constantly looking for insights that would help him with his canonical problem. And then where he could find categories and concepts in the literature that were relevant to the question, he, he would draw upon them and also give credit. And, and where there were categories that were lacking like selective intervention is impossible or the fundamental transformation. He, he would provide a language and concepts that were extraordinarily helpful for answering the canonical problem. So part of being a theorist, like, well, like one time there was a uh, assistant uh, professor who gave a seminar at Illinois. And one of the first things out of the shoot was it was he gave four or five concepts and he, and he asked, what do you think of these of this conceptual framework. And so I raised my hand and I, 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 I said to him, I will have no idea about this conceptual framework until I know what your problem is. 
like, like, like for example, uh, this was actually written in an international business textbook for undergraduates, and I thought it was a fantastic example. There's a little girl on the beach, and she's walking along, and she sees a whole bunch of little pebbles and, uh, and little rocks. And then so she collects them all together, and then she puts them into little piles. She puts them in the piles of aesthetically uh, the green ones and the blue ones and the red ones and the one, and just in, in, in a way that made sense to her aesthetically. But then from out, out of space comes, a, uh, comes an alien ship who then drops a big, large canvas bag over her on the beach and she's trapped inside. And then she looks at the stones in a very different way because now she's looking for the stones with the jagged edges because she has to cut her way out of the bag. So in that sense, the, the meaning of any typology in theory is it has to be relevant to the problem at hand. So matter of fact, that was another very good theorist, uh, Edith Penrose said the same thing. Like, like she, in the beginning of her book, she says, the resources that you define for your, within your particular work will depend on the problem at hand. So that's the beginning of the theory. And as a matter of fact, that also kind of resonates a bit for anyone who's read the, um, the Andy Vandevin book on engaged scholarship. Like his diamond models that way too. You, you start with the problem you then develop the theory and the concepts relevant to the problem. Uh, you then get to the measures, and then uh, hopefully you'll have something uh, constructive to say to, for managers uh, and for researchers dealing with that problem. Right. So in that sense, a really great dissertation also brings all those things together. Right? In the end, it's, it's kind of a, there's, there's kind of an artistry to a great dissertation. And the artistry is when it all comes together that the problem, the theory, the measurements, the methodology, all kind of come together beautifully in, in kind of hitting, hitting the target of what you're trying to achieve. And, so, and, so, and also, I think to become a good theorist, uh, at least my pathway to thinking about being a good theorist, is once again, be, being um, tenacious about your dependent variable. You, so I never went into it, even, even though I had a tremendous passion for TCE, I then moved to four or five other organizational theories because I was never really wanted to I, have an identification as a theorist of one thing. I, I wanted to be more um, a person who cared about real world problems and theory was a, was a, was a way of dealing with real world problems. And, and I actually think that's, that's closer to what a strategy professor in my mind should be. As a matter of fact, I, 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 maybe some of the doctoral students who are listening today will probably, probably remember that I often say this uh, over the years in my seminars, is if, if, the, if the people in the disciplines think you're too practical and the executives that you teach in the evening think that you're too theoretical and no one's really particularly finding you perfect, then, then you're the perfect strategy scholar, right? Because it really is a bridge between, and, and it is the Paul Samuelson book and it is the Williamson book. Uh, so I guess those are the scholars and the Van and Vandevin too. Those are the scholars that are connecting theory and practice. And I really think that's the center of what being of what strategic management is all about. Wow. Uh, so I guess the question of how you chose your dissertation is a little bit moot, but if you can still tell us, I, it sounds like this topic on organizational ungovernance and um, a vertical in integration um, 
it's it's so central to everything you did but um and it, it sounds like it came so natural to you but uh can you please tell us if it was if it if it did indeed uh come so natural or did you have any doubts at that point how much how far did you search for the topic i i, I think one thing to re really understand about my path is it's a very idiosyncratic path. Uh, when I was in grade school, for example, I was the only um, uh, white person in an all-black class. And so my, my nickname was Casper. Uh, but, but in grade school and in high school, the neighborhood was so dangerous that I really couldn't go out uh, past uh, like five, five or six o'clock in the evening. And, and my entire life, from the time I was born until until I went away to college was probably within a six or seven block radius. And I really didn't get clued in about anything about the world. So when I went to Penn, the, the interesting thing for me about economics, as opposed to the other subjects, is all the kids at the University of Pennsylvania were extraordinarily clued into the world and and they knew so much more than me, but yet when I took economics, it was the one subject that was so abstract that it, it, in some, in a funny way, it was the fact that I was unencumbered by any facts in the real world that made me particularly strong in economics because I could learn all the principles. And then for me, it wasn't a path of knowing the things in the real world and then connecting to the abstract concept. For me, it was, I learned the, the internal logic of the world of economics first. And then I tried to figure out what the heck does this have to do with the real world, which I knew nothing of. And now I'm a second year doctoral student. And, uh, and, and as a second year doctoral PhD student, um, just to give an example, I mean, I have a degree in economics from the University of Pennsylvania in 1980. And I go to open up my first bank account because up until then I didn't have any money. So I open up the account and the person behind the counter, I said, I want to open an account. And the person says, well, what, what kind of a account do you want? And I asked, well, what kind of accounts do you have? <laughs> yeah, so so, uh, so uh, they said savings account and checking account. And I said, oh, okay. So they are different there. So I, I, knew, I knew even coming out as an undergrad, I knew virtually nothing about the real world because I had really been uh, quite isolated most of my life. So so then, then what do I learn in the first year of grad school? I learned the fundamental welfare theorems of economics, right? So, so now I'm even more in an abstract world than I could ever imagine when I was an undergraduate. And then as, as I mentioned, having four courses in calculus helped me get through that. So, but, but then I pick up the Williamson book and the Williamson book is actually what it is. And he, Williamson actually said, said this himself when I was a first year doctoral student at Penn and I heard him say this, you can't understand the markets and hierarchies book unless you understand the fundamental welfare theorems. So essentially, as you go through the structure of the whole book, it's just if you so I, I encourage anyone to, to look at to just look at all the premises, get out any textbook that has the fundamental welfare themes, look at all the premises. And then all the premises that are relaxed are, are systematically relaxed throughout the Williamson book. So you don't have perfect information, you have asymmetric information, you don't have perfect rationality, you have bounded rationality, you don't have completely fungible assets, you have asset specificity, on and on. Every single assumption is then relaxed. And so so that was my way then of understanding my abstract world. So, so, so Williamson was a bridge to me from all the, act, all the principles I had learned that I was then able to, to connect them to the real world. And I was so thankful for that. 
And so for me, he was an extraordinarily important person in my, in my life. And, I, and I, there's no way that I could have connected to become a strategic management professor if I didn't have the good fortune of having read that book, because I wouldn't have known the pathway myself to get there. So, so now I'm in the TCE, and, and I, one of the comments Williamson makes is uh, 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 was a, a, a incomplete contracting in its entirety. Well, the meaning to that for my life is <clears throat> I knew I didn't have hardly any experience at all. And I also knew um, that I wasn't going to become a general equilibrium theorist because I already knew that from my mathematical experience before that wasn't going to be it. And I also knew that in order to have a good dissertation, I, at least I had the meta knowledge that you had to have a good fit between your theory and your problem. I did have that much going for me. I, I kind of remind myself of, uh, of uh, Bill Murray and and uh, uh, what was the Caddyshack? Yeah, where, where he kind of he says at some point, "Well, at least I got that going for me." If anyone who knows the movie there, but uh, so so then I knew that that if I, if I was going to be successful because Williamson was a successful theorist and his canonical problem was vertical integration and his theory was transaction cost, that I would not go wrong if I chose that combination. But then I had to figure out what to do was new. And before I did that, I had to figure, I did what was old. So I, I actually read uh, literally a thousand papers on vertical integration, starting with the Quarterly Journal of Economics in uh, 2001. As a matter of fact, when and Parmigiani was a doctoral student in Michigan. I gave her the list of the thousand articles. And then when I saw some of her papers come out, I have little doubt that she read most of them. So she had all the, all the obscure ones on my list were also included in some of her works. So, so I, have, I have all that, but I still don't know what to do, which is new. And then, and then I, was, uh, for two, I, I was lucky enough, I went to the library and I saw there was a working paper that Williamson had at a history, business history conference. And his comment was that there's very little work uh, joining transactions costs and business history. So, so then I, then I uh, and of course, all of this is my own education. In the meantime, I'm passing all the courses in the economics, but very little of it's resonating with me. So I'm, I'm just doing all of this on my own. So then I read the Chandler book, Strategy and Structure, and I read the uh, Visible Handbook. And in the Visible Handbook, I kind of replicated what I did with Williamson with Chandler. So I, I read virtually every reference that was in the Chandler book on vertical integrations. And that gave me a tremendous number of case studies. And because I had very little knowledge of the world, but the really funny thing is I really sounded worldly because I, I, I was a, a walking and talking encyclopedia of the 1840-1920 period. So it just seemed like, I, oh, I was then connecting this to the world today, which I didn't really know very well. But um, so then, that, so then, that, then my dissertation was uh, joining uh, transactions cost theory with of Williamson with Chandler's uh, Visible Handbook. And there, there was a lot of mileage in being able to combine those two. And so, uh, and then that paper eventually got uh, uh, published uh, with a couple of historians, Marcella Buccelli at Illinois and Paul Valor, who's a wonderful scholar, who was a history major as an undergraduate. So that was published in Journal of Management Studies a few years ago. So that, that was kind of mothballed for a very long time, but, but came back uh, 20 years later. And, um, and so that's the history part. And, and then there was a doctoral student who gave me a, an ASQ paper by Palmer and Jennings and Devereaux. Uh, there was four, there was four, four uh, authors to that. And so that particular paper provided data on every single variable in that 
uh, in that econometric regression. So what I did then, of course, as I as I'm wont to do, is I like to replicate things since I kind of replicated the Williamson book and by reading everything he ever read on the subject. And Chandler, I did that with that paper too. So I I spent about a year, and the the only time in my life I've collected data. So I collected data for about a year, and then I actually replicated the study. And Almerin Phillips, who was uh, who was uh, the editor at the time of the Journal of Industrial Economics, and he was in his mid-60s at the time, he said it's the only empirical study he ever saw completely replicated. So that was kind of interesting right there in and of itself. And then from there, I was really lucky that I, I had a lot of ways of doing better because there was a dissertation done by a Williamson student that, was, that measured multi-divisionals multi in a very fine-grained way and did it for the Fortune 500. So that wasn't done in the ASQ article. It was really weird. I had all the data for 1967. It was a cross-sectional. And then it actually, if you, if, if you were to take the 1975 Burry diversification book, Burry actually gives all the numbers for the Fortune 500 companies for diversification for 1967. So that was really lucky too. So I was able to use that. So I, I had better measures and, and basically I was teaching myself uh, much of the time. Uh, so I was kind of, and then the other thing too, uh, I will say that was, uh, you, you talk about challenges and triumphs. I was in an economics department where, where they, most of them absolutely despised the fact that I was doing things on my own, mm -hmm. right? And I was doing something that they didn't particularly value. And, and so I think another part of the part of my story is I was extraordinarily naive. I thought that yes, they don't like TCE, but they're going to recognize that I'm one of the best to ever work on this subject, and they're going to appreciate that. <laughs> that turned out to be quite naive, and they, they did not appreciate it at all. But, but I would say the thing that really helped me was, was I knew they were antagonistic and that, and, and that made me really learn the subject well. So, so literally at my, at my dissertation defense, I actually would, would be able to talk about all thousand of the articles that I had cited. And so, and then uh, Almer and Phillips actually asked me about a, a book chapter that was done, I'm trying to remember the guy's name, or Victor Goldberg. Uh, it was a, and, and so, so and I think Almarin knew I knew all the papers, so he deliberately picked a book chapter. And then I was able to say that, that what that book chapter was on was Goldberg made the comment that if you were to, and, and I see Rich McIntyre here said, Rich, you might be able to get some mileage with this. Uh, he said that you can look at every operations management uh, model that's ever been written on minimizing uh, production costs and transportation costs. And then you can look at those models to think about minimizing production costs and transactions costs. And the cool thing is you don't even have to change the notation, right? It goes from transportation costs to transactions costs. So, so there might be something there uh, that can, so, so many years later, maybe someone can use it. Mm -hmm. yeah. That was a long answer, but okay. Yeah, no. I didn't have time to give you a short answer. <laughs> yeah, so you, you were, uh, an outlier in a in a profession that was different than uh, yours uh, currently, right? Because um, yes. you were you are in a diff totally different field. So then, uh, when did yeah, you so, so transition I, so, to? Yeah. So when I when I came to uh, Illinois for my, I, I, I had a mm -hmm. few job talks in strategy. So I got an offer at Kentucky, and I also got an offer at Illinois. And remember, I'd never been to an Academy of Magic meeting. So I, 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 and then also for most of my time, I was in the economics department at the University of Pennsylvania. So I, I knew almost no one in the strategy field. 
So I, I am living proof that you don't necessarily have to network that because <laughs> I, I had zero network. Well, I had Ned Bowman and Bruce Kogan. So, so I had good, good people to give me, to give me letters of, uh, of, uh, or, or comments and recommendation, but I, I knew no one in the strategy field. Okay, so <laughs> a proof that uh, barriers to entry uh, are not, uh, and never high enough for the right type of people. <laughs> yeah, well, well, well uh, I, I guess that would, uh, that would be my, that'd be my message is, is, is if, if you merit it enough, Mm. Then, then it's hard. It's hard to be stopped. I think. It, it, I would say. I would say also. Uh, it, it's certainly a, as as we see in our current word, world now. It's also a confidence game. Don't kid yourself. It's a, doubling down on confidence constantly is not always going to get you there because as as we see in today's environment, it's it's also a confidence game, as well. But I prefer to play the competence game. I think that's more fun. I'd, ra I'd rather swim with the dolphins than swim with the sharks. This is very encouraging. Yeah. The, other thing, the other thing I would say about it is even as an assistant professor, I still kind of did my own thing because I, you know, being isolated as a, as a white person, all, all black uh, school, and then also being isolated in the economics department. So by the time I was an assistant professor, I was very accustomed to doing things my way because that was the only the only way I knew it's, it's not like I was being belligerent it's just that simply that was the only thing I knew so then I started I, I, I acted as if I was a full chair professor from the time I was a first year assistant professor so so I, I wrote papers that were mostly public goods papers like a senior colleague and I even got a I got a, uh, a letter from a full professor at Michigan who wrote you have no right to write papers like this as a young scholar and so I just wrote back to him, I guess I didn't get the rule book. So, so and, and, and I wasn't really that feisty or anything. It was just, uh, I, that was the only way I knew. As a matter of fact, for those who know the comedian John Oliver, uh, John Oliver was uh, interviewed one time and uh, he said from the time he was, a, he was a, a teenager, he wanted to be a comedian. And then he finally got his first break and it was clear that he was on a trajectory to do really well. And his father said to him, I am really proud of you doing this because the odds against you were so high. And John Oliver said to his father, it never occurred to me until this moment that the odds against me were real high. And I would say that's also my story too. I, I had no idea how, how much the things were stacked against me, but that, Naivete was also, uh, there is the expression dare to be naive. Well, I wasn't dare, I was just flat out naive. I wasn't daring to be naive. So, but in, but in some ways, uh, you, you, I, I guess that's what I would say for, I would say for every faculty person, you have an opportunity for your own hero's journey, to use a, the term of Joseph Campbell. Everybody's going to have their fears and insecurities and difficulties and and everybody has their own pains and, and challenges. Everybody has challenges. And so in some ways, uh, by the fact that I'm sure everyone on this screen shows courage in some way that's invisible to everybody else, but it's part of your hero's journey. Right. So Joe, um, I'm, I'm very curious if you had any paradigm shifts related to your research 
because you you started with vertical integration governance costs and now you're talking about stakeholder theory you talk about the growth of the firm you 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 meant you you are um so much into uh, understanding how we can govern public and private organizations and a, a very interesting and unusual type of organization uh, you're studying is the, um, um, are the prisons. So um, from, from M&A to prison, it's, um, it's quite a journey. So uh, and, and, how and, do uh, you, how would you describe your... Well, well what I <laughs> want to suggest to you is that the journey is not as great as one might think. And, and so the, the, the answer to your puzzle is that it, it, I remember when Larry Stimford was a, uh, he was a, he's now president of a, of a university. I can't, can't remember the name of it right now. But, uh, but uh, he was a doctoral student of Irene Duhaines and he was doing a dissertation on diversification. And this is before resource-based view really even got hold. This was like 1989. Hmm. And he, he interviewed, um, and he had, he had experience uh, in working before coming, coming back to his PhD. So he interviewed, uh, part of his dissertation was uh, process dissertation interviewing managers. So he interviewed a manager early on and he just mentioned off the cuff, I see you're a really highly unrelated diversified firm. And then he listed all the different products that the company was in. And then the manager said to him, oh, we're quite related. And, and so and Larry said, in what way? And he said, well, every acquisition we make, we, we have a recipe for turnarounds. So we use the same recipe for every one of the acquisitions that we make. So we're actually very highly related. And I would say the same thing right now about your puzzle about, you know, how do you go from make or buy decisions to stakeholder to looking at public and private prisons? And the answer is it, it's all of the same theoretical thread. And so you, in terms of learning the make or buy decision, it's learning about market frictions. In going to the stakeholder view, as a matter of fact, the, the, probably the great bridge there was I, I read a paper by uh, Margaret Blair and Lynn Stout. Now, Blair and Stout are kind of like the Burley and Means of our time. So, so mm -hmm. uh, Burley, Burley, well, Adolph Burl was a, maybe Burl was a, uh, a law professor, I think at Columbia, mm -hmm. and, um, and Gardner Means was an economist at Wisconsin Madison. And it was the synergy between the two, almost like in a Williamsonian way of bringing together law and economics. So, so their, their modern corporation book in 1932 is, uh, is the fruits of that labor. So, so uh, when I read the Blair and Stout, and I've read a lot of law papers actually, because I, I was trying to understand governance from a law perspective, trying to be a good TCE person and actually follow his advice and read some of the law papers. And many of them didn't resonate with me. And then I read that it's in the Virginia Law Review in 1999. I, I can see Seth on the screen. I can remember he actually, I have a good memory. He actually presented that, uh, that paper in the doctoral seminar many years ago. And, uh, and so I actually wrote a really funny email to, to uh, Margaret Blair, who was a, then a professor. I didn't even know she was a PhD in economics at the time. I do, I do now because she was a professor in the law school. So I wrote to Margaret Blair and I said, I really understand this paper. Why is that? <laughs> because it's the only law paper I ever read where it, everything resonated with me. And I didn't know, and then she wrote back 
that she was a she was she was at Yale when Williamson was at Yale and when Sydney Winter was at, at mm -hmm. Yale. And so she really had a strong background in organizational economics. And then Lynn Stout was a law professor, but the two of them together put together an extraordinarily strong, as a matter of fact, to, to, to use the mathematical models they, they brought together, they, they really took the, the Alchin and Demsets team production problem, not being able to determine individual productivity by looking at the output. And she combined that with problems of asset specificity. And I thought it was a really cool paper to look at combining the measurement branch, branch of TCE and Alchin Demsets with the Williamson in a, in a way that it then was extraordinarily connected to the real world of law and understanding corporate law. So that was like a, another one of those papers that really was kind of, a, 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 once again, the theme was someone really strong in theory who also could really help me understand practice. I'm also looking at Rich Magnet again. I, I don't know if he remembers, but maybe about 20 years ago, I said to him that it was kind of the same thing, right? I said, you're really, you're really good at analytical modeling, but you're also extraordinarily good at explaining real world examples. And so, and those are the people that not only appreciate, those are the people I need just to kind of uh, not be, not always have the blooming confusion that's in my head. So I, I need, a, so in some ways I would say my success is also because of probably everyone on this screen is that I'm always learning from others so that I can not be as confused feeling as I often feel. So anyway, the, the Blair and Stout uh, paper then uh, brought me into the world of stakeholder. And then that got reinforced by a paper in the year 2000 by Luigi Zingales. It was, called, it, it was, it was his acceptance uh, speech for being the, being the top scholar in finance under 40. And it is a manifesto of changing corporate finance to, be, to move from the shareholder primacy to a stakeholder view. And the thing that I found really cool about that paper was, I guess I like Mavericks. And, and in some ways, uh, Williamson was a Maverick because even in the 75 book, he, he criticized, like in the book you can go, he criticized an idea by Kenneth Arrow saying it was glib and inaccurate. And I always thought that was really cool because I thought, well, well, here's a person who's uh, loyal to the ideas. And if he, even if he thinks a Nobel Prize winner, by the way, Williamson wants a Nobel Prize, but he's still gonna let Kenneth Arrow who's going to be one of the voters for the Nobel Prize know that his idea was glib and inaccurate. So I said, yeah, so I said, that's, that, that's, the, that's the kind of person. So, so Luigi Zingales was the same way. Here's a finance professor from the University of Chicago writing to the field that they should switch from being shareholder primacy to stakeholder. I'm sure that was treated like a dead cat thrown in the middle of the room, right? It just was not, it just was not appreciated. But I appreciated the, the honesty and then also the talent to be able to be a professor in finance at Chicago and to be such a maverick to me is a really cool thing. And in fact, that, that's the joy of learning is that, is that somewhere along the way you find your own voice and then you just give that voice and you don't, and, and by the way, by, so, so you guys are in your 40s or approaching 40 or 50s, it gets even easier by the time you get in your 60s, right? You know, your, your body's falling apart, so you really don't give a damn what people have to say about you anymore. So, so you know, at some point, you just kind of let loose. And, and, and if you're preparing all along the way, then you'll have something to say, right? I mean, if you just stick with it, you're going to have something, you're going to have an, if you keep your health, you're going to have an opportunity for something to say. And in some ways, just keep working and find your own voice. 
So go deep. Oh, and then how to get to the prison. Well, there was, ah, a paper, yes. there was a paper by Williamson in 1999 on, uh, in the Journal of Law, Economics, and Organization, where he has a term called the hazards of probity. And there he's talking about situations where you can expect the market not to work well. As a, ma as a matter of fact, that 1999 paper gives the example, essentially, of you don't want the president of your country to own a lot of hotels throughout the world. Right, that's that's a quintessential hazards of probity because the because the actions you do in foreign affairs can be in direct conflict with the self-interest of the person involved. So, so that's just such a fundamental problem that you don't want to go there. But the, he also talked about prisons, and there was also a paper by Hart, Schleifer, and Vishni in the Quarterly Journal of Economics in 1998 that talked about quality shading. So if, if you have people in prisons who, and it also if you think about a market as being like Hirschman's exit voice and loyalty, you can't exit the prison. No matter how bad the food gets, you can't voice about the prison. So, and then the, the loyalty, you have, you have no choice but to, to be where you are. So there is no market. So, so to try to, so, so that in other words, there are limitations of markets. So in areas of foreign affairs, uh, military, I know Anita McGahan and uh, Joel Down have written a lot about that. You, you, you don't want for-profit armies or you're, or you're going to have more conflicts because they'll be incentivized that way. You, you don't want to have for-profit prisons, which began in 1983 in Tennessee, which, by the way, kind of, uh, kind of, kind of uh, in some ways mirrors the convict lease system in the United States where prisoners were leased out to corporations from uh, 1867 to 1933, with North Carolina being the last. And so you can read the history. Just just go to Google. I mean, just go to Wikipedia and type in convict lease system, and then you'll you'll learn a lot about the problems there, and you can connect them a lot to the problems today in the in the quite corrupt uh, private prisons that we have today. But so anyway, the, the bottom line of this story is that uh, Williamson resonated me resonated with me in a very passionate way about bounded rationality and opportunism. And yet the phenomenon of the make or buy decision I actually found boring. But I did it anyway because, uh, because I knew it was connected to the, to the, to the theory which I, I knew was a powerful lens. And I had no idea in 1988 that, that that lens would lead me to something where the phenomenon I'm passionate about. And that was um, uh, private public so it's not markets and hierarchies it's now markets and government right so it's uh it's not looking at make or buy this uh or, or buy and make decisions but it's now look at private prisons versus public prisons so in some sense i would say the tce lens uh, informed me in the beginning about vertical integration it informed me in the middle of my career in terms of moving over to a stakeholder view and then towards the latter part of my career it's moved me towards towards uh, studying public and private prisons. I would say the, the other element involved is you have to have faith in yourself and faith that your journey has meaning. I think William James was a, a pragmatist who said, if you have a belief in the meaning of your own life, the life will have meaning. And so you have to have the faith that what you're doing now sometimes can seem quite trivial when you're battling a reviewer and it's really, you know, it's really, uh, really belongs in a hair splitters convention, right? You're really just kind of battling back and forth about something which, uh, 
may not really be your passion at the moment, but, but you have to think that all the skills that you're learning, that sometimes these challenges are, that the meaning of those challenges is that you build your skills in, in explaining, which then can have great relevance later in your career when you actually have a, something that you're quite passionate about. So that the, the, the meaning of your career, matter of fact, the other thing I'll say to you is for, for most of you, you may not even know the meaning of your career. But what you, start to, you start to see a little bit, by the way, when you get, to, when you, you get past 60, because you're able, because Soren Kierkegaard said, you, we, we live life forward, but we understand it going backward. And by the time you hit 60, you start to look backward more, and then you get your own meaning. And I'm, I'm sure, and the other thing too, I guess is Carl White's comment is correct, is I, how do I know what I think until I hear what I say? So quite frankly, um, I've been enjoying hearing myself today because it's, it's kind of, because <laughs> I, who knows what I'm gonna say? <laughs> I, with your next question, who knows what I'm gonna say? So, uh, <laughs> so, what I what I take from here, and actually I I, I have to confess that we 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 somehow talked about uh, these things um, um, in in several conversation, and it, it always it feels so it feels so it feels so good to uh, to hear you that uh, you know we we all gonna find our passion and meaning and um, you know all the patience that we have in the review process and uh, dealing with mundane things at the end of the day is going to pay off because what I take from from what you said is I go deep by going broad and then in your quest for understanding human condition that's 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 how I put together things you you just said I think this is a a good moment for for us to understand whether you have any concerns or any any views um, about the strategy as a field um, as, as we are moving forward where do you see the field moving where would you like to see the field um, moving and um, so you, you, you know I got that question in advance and uh, and I thought a lot about it I was going to say certain things but but now I'm just going to go with a completely different answer that just came into my head <laughs> which is what I usually do anyway when I'm teaching. Um, I, I think uh, many years ago, uh, Ned Bowman, who was my mentor at uh, Wharton and tremendous influence on my career, um, he, he commented that he didn't think there were enough debates in the strategy field. And so I, I, I get concerned that, that people become too publishing oriented which in the long run, you know, as you, as you get ready to retire, it's not, you know, you know the, of course, the number of publications is really important to get tenure. <laughs> but, but, it's, but at some point, it's, it's not the publishing that matters. It, it, it's, the, it's the ideas that matter. And so, and, and it, it, also I've been an associate editor nine years at SMJ and three years at AMR. And what I'm starting to get concerned about is the fundamental idea that I think we all need to say to others in the profession is that disagreement does not imply disrespect. And so when I first went into the profession, we all knew that we were here to agree to disagree. And I find over the years that that's decaying a little bit so that I'm really surprised now that some, some authors 
that were like me when I started. And so a lot of times in the reviews, I, I, I would tell the reviewer that that's incorrect. And then I would give like 50 citations to show that my view was correct. So I provide lots of evidence. Unfortunately, I was in an, I was in a time period where you were able to do that and still publish. I find today that a lot of reviewers will write to me saying that the author was disrespectful. And, you know, and then this, this is after the author has said, please and great and you're wonderful to the to the reviewer, like 20 times, I'm rolling my eyes how many times they say how great the comments are. You know, they, they, they say, you know, every every comment is is, uh, is brilliant. But but even then, the, you know, the, the, the reviewers will complain that the, you know, so, so the point is that the, I actually think the review process, you, you build skills both as a reviewer and as an author, if we agree to disagree and we give the evidence on each side and that's what I meant by long ago when I wrote a, about science as conversation, that, that, that it's, it's really not about winning, it's about getting it right. And you give me the reasons why you think you're correct on it. And, and it's, you know, for people who just think it's all about power, then, then that, that also can become a self-reinforcing belief, right? You just think it's all about, uh, you know, like, I have more power than you and I'm gonna get my way. And then of course, if that's the way people see everything, then that can be kind of self-fulfilling. So. So what, what I really think is important for the strategy field is for the, is for the, is for the associate and full professors to, as much as possible, build a culture where it's about the ideas. It's about we agree to disagree. Matter of fact, there's a, there's a philosopher, Jürgen Habermas, and he has a book called Communicative Action. Where his argument is at the at the end of the day, what really what really is important for a society to survive is that there's ethical rules of conversation. So my view is that, that if people are allowed to disagree in a respectful way, that that's probably the most important cultural aspect. I, I think the field will we have so many smart, uh, bright people in the field currently and. And I see the talent in the, our doctoral students in the last several years uh, increasing. So, it, it, so I, I think we have a lot of talent that wants to be involved. And as long as we provide, so this is kind of, I guess I am really am a Williamsonian then, right? I, I think it's important that we provide governance and safeguards that allow young scholars to give their voice. And in the long run, that'll be to the benefit uh, public goods benefit the entire field. One of the questions that several people have asked is, um, uh, what would be your, uh, oh, what have you learned from being on 87 doctoral student committees on how to mentor? So what would be your advice about, to those of us who now are mentoring uh, students or are working with PhD students. I think mentoring is such a, um, it goes to a different level of. Uh, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think this is the key, the key point, by the way, but <laughs> at one point that comes to mind right away is I, I think around the 35th doctoral student, somewhere in that range, I had a different relationship with the doctoral students at some point. And, 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 and where it started the change was uh, getting over my own insecurities. Like I always wanted to be the one who, who, who knows everything, but around the 35th doctor student, I, I would just like to say to doctor, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Uh, I don't know that methodology. You're gonna have to explain it to me. I don't know what this, 
this uh, measure mean by it, I, I can't decipher how it's connected to the concept. So, so I'm just, so I, I think one of the things that really helps in being a mentor is having a relationship with the student where you, you often will say, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> because the, they're studying the subject all, and, and, and sometimes, by the way, you find out that they don't know what they're talking about either. But, so, but sometimes they do, and then that's when you, but either way, somebody's going to learn from that conversation. So that's the first thing. I, I, I would say at a more intellectual level, what I learned was that in the same way that there's the red states and the blue states, uh, as, uh, as uh, Will Mitchell said, there, there, there are the red scholars and the blue scholars, and I don't know which color is which, but but uh, kind of worry about that. But, but the point is that there's one doctoral student in particular who I wanted to go through the diamond model with. And so I would ask the doctoral student, and Janet Berkowitz was, uh, was on the project as well. And for the entire semester, we would ask the student to kind of define their problem. And every single week, the entire semester, the student would come in with a different problem. And then halfway through the semester, I'd be pointing like this, don't you dare come in with a different problem. <laughs> he did. He came in with a different problem the So he was making no progress at all by starting with the problem. And then, and then he started with the theory. And then it was like a different person. So he, so he was more of a Kathy Eisenhardt kind of read the literature, find a gap in the literature, fill the gap. And then he was extraordinarily successful. So, so the thing I would say is, is uh, when, you're, when, you're, when you're mentoring doctoral students, it's really helpful to think about which way, because remember, I told my story of the idiosyncratic, I learned the theory first and then, and then tried to figure my way towards practice, which is what I did. And so in some ways, I was a Kathy Eisenhardt kind of scholar in my dissertation, but over the years in strategy, I've, 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 had, I've done enough cases and taught executives for 25 years, so now I prefer actually going from the problem to the, to the theory, but that's not the way I started. And as a matter of fact, if I had started by you give me a problem and then doing the theory, I probably wouldn't have done that well, given my lack of experience. And maybe as a rule of thumb, that if people come into the program with a lot of work experience, my working hypothesis would be you might want to start them with the problem and bring them over to the theory. And if they're a young person right out of undergrad school, you might do better mentoring them by starting with the theory, filling a gap, and then having them connect the problems. At the end of the day, as I mentioned, it, it's the fit between the canonical problem and the theory, but there's, uh, there, there's different pathways. And, and the right answer to that question depends on the skills and idiosyncrasies of the, of the doctoral student you're mentoring. We are already one hour in the conversation and I'm cognizant that uh, there are so many questions around and I don't want to uh, monopolize the discussion. But Joe, I have a battery of questions for you and I want you to give me just a very, very short answer. Okay? And then I'm gonna open the floor to everyone. So um, how do you remember so many research papers? Anita, this was your question. Quick answer, Joe. I, I think it might be DNA because, because my, my, uh, my father, when he went to St. Joseph's College in Philadelphia as a Jesuit school, and there was a Jesuit uh, teacher of uh, physics. No, okay, of chemistry. 
<laughs> and and, uh, and he, his comment in the first day of class was, if anyone memorizes the periodic table for the next class, they'll get an A for the course. And so my dad, uh, for the next class, had memorized the periodic table and got his A for the course. So my, my dad had an extraordinary memory. My mom's memory was good, too. So it's just, it's probably a lot of DNA. Joe, where do you get your jokes from? Your repertoire of jokes is almost comparable to your knowledge of the research literature. That was the question from Dan Chin. Okay. I would say that growing up as the only white kid in all black neighborhood as a kid, you better learn how to joke because you, you, you need to use humor to diffuse anger. So that's the first thing to say. And also to be, be more approachable uh, or to be less threatening on both sides. It really helps quite a bit. Uh, I would also say that if you know anyone from Philadelphia, there's a, there's a distinctive Philadelphia sense of humor. So when I went to, uh, I got Christian Brothers in high school at West Catholic, and uh, which is about 10 blocks from Penn, and the students there were just the funniest kids. My, my brother and I talked about this too. They were just all so funny every single day with just tremendous emotion. So I, I was immersed in an environment of joking for four years in high school with the Philadelphia sense of humor. And, uh, and then only to find out later, both my brother and I have commented, you can travel anywhere in the world and you don't get that Philadelphia sense of humor. So, so I'll, I'll chalk that. The first one was DNA. This one I'll chalk up partly to my environment. Okay. Your favorite travel destination? Uh, my wife, Jean, likes Paris. And so, uh, so she's so happy when she's in Paris, I would have to say Paris. Wow. <laughs> You're well, welcome I, I to visit. Say, say, you're embarrassed, right? <laughs> you're welcome to visit. Yeah, yeah. So I'll expect my invitation by email tomorrow. Absolutely. What type of music do you like? And what's your favorite mu musician? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question. What type of music do you like? And what's your favorite musician or band? Uh, well, my favorite, my favorite, uh, well, when I was younger, my favorite band was the Beatles. Although my favorite band now is actually a, a group called, it's an old group, it's called The Band. So uh, I just think they had a tremendous number of distinctive songs and, uh, and they were a very unusual bunch. E each one had their own personality that was quite different and uh, but that's my favorite. Yeah, and the first one was my favorite music. Uh, I, I like type I like of rock. music. What type of music? Yeah, well, I, I like rock and roll the best. Joe, should we say the Illinois well kept secret about the music you like? One of about rock or other music you like? No, you don't yeah, want to well, say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what is the other music? <laughs> no, I was just uh, thinking about uh, your. Um, well, maybe it's not passion because you didn't pick on him, but you, I remember you liking uh, Elvis Presley a lot. Elvis Presley, oh yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> well, the, well, the secret there was uh, many years at the Christmas party, I would dress up as, uh, in, in the full nine yards as Elvis Presley and sing an Elvis Presley song. Although a couple of years I dressed up as Roy Orbison, sang Roy Orbison. With that, let me open the floor and see what other questions are here. There are many uh, funny questions on my list, but um, if I can, I'm going to ask them towards the end. I want to check if uh, John Wook is still there. 
Denise, see now. take a screenshot before we dive into the question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because well, maybe if, if everyone, if you feel comfortable showing your could and smiling up at the smile, screen. especially. Uh, okay, yes. Deb, if you can, and Cinziana, if you can put on your picture, that would be great because I have you. How about I count to three and everyone smile? All right. One, two, three. Cheese. Mm. All right. I think I got a good photo. Perfect. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. Great. Uh, so, um, Joe, John, John Wook, you still here? Yeah, I am I, still here. Yeah. <laughs> you, you sent a question. If you want, you can ask yeah, that question. So, or <laughs> all right. Well, yeah, I, I was uh, thinking about like I was torn between asking a really serious question or a kind of a more of a light-hearted, fun question. I decided that uh, it's summer, you know. And it's kind of grim outside, so maybe a funny question would be better. So I was going to ask uh, um, Joe a very Philly specific question is, um, so do you guys uh, want to stick with Carson Wentz or draft a new quarterback? <laughs> <laughs> well, Carson's very talented, but uh, he, yes. he also is prone to injury. So I think at the very least, we need a very good backup quarterback. He, he, he doesn't seem durable to last the whole season. All right, thank you for that. You can raise your hand. Do you really have a serious question? No, go ahead. Oh, uh, actually, I was um 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 I got asked to write a book chapter on vertical integration about a year ago, and I, I guess some um, people were busy, so finally it came down to me um, eventually. Um, and, and so as I was doing the review, and I, I didn't read all one thousand papers like I, I maybe I should have, but um, no, you I really was, shouldn't. Matter of fact, someday I'm going to write a paper of what reading a thousand papers on vertical integration does to a man. <laughs> and, it's, yes. and, and it's not good. Yeah, so they didn't give me a lot of time, so I cheated. I, I looked at a few nice uh, reviews, literature reviews, and uh, tried to kind of get around to it. And uh, one of the things that I kind of still, still stuck with me, and um, you know, I've been kind of meaning to get back to it, haven't really had a, you know, a chance to do so, was uh, they're talking about you know, forward integration and backward integration and how it's kind of interesting that the TCE is always talking about kind of supplier relationships, kind of backward integration decisions. And then there's always these other kind of questions about, I guess, um, you know, getting into retail or, you know, or, or, or not, and, you know, kind of forward integration. And of course that uses, usually kind of uses kind of moral hazard type models. And it kind of seemed interesting that we're kind of using different models in a very kind of interesting way, looking at, kind of one subset of questions and then this other model to look at the other subset of questions. And I kind of wonder like, then are they the exact, you know, can we kind of say they're kind of the same phenomenon and kind of put it under vertical integration or are they kind of, are there kind of fundamental differences in a way that maybe we need to kind of look at this in a, in a different light. And so that was the kind of, I, I guess my next kind of project I've been kind of putting off for a bit, but just a thought. And I thought I would ask you the expert. Well, certainly the phenomenon is, is different, but I, I could be shown to be incorrect, but up until this moment, I've always thought of, thought about it as the, the theory can be used in either direction, but, but there could be a paradigm shift if someone can convince me. But, but the point is that there, there's, a, there's a lot of papers on, like, like Janet Berkowitz uh, studied franchising, right? And she, she was a student of Williamson's looking for, also Erin Anderson was in the uh, marketing department at Penn when I was there, and she looked yeah. a lot at, the, at distribution channels and uh, forward integration. So, and then also, even if you go to, if you go back to the Williamson uh, 
textbooks, like his 85 book in particular, he has a, there's a whole section on, on forward integration in that book. So, so cer certainly it's, uh, it's considered and thought of using the TCE theme. Okay, thank you. I mean, I'll have to kind of read up on it a little more to, you know, figure it out. But I uh, just, one of those things kind of stuck with me. An interesting comment by, I think, with a LaFontaine's review, and uh, it was just one of those things. So, thanks, Joe. Right. I'd like to remind everyone that you can either send me the question on chat or raise your hand, and then uh, you can ask Joe directly. Um, I don't see. Yeah. Yes, uh, Young. Yes. Go ahead. You have to unmute. Yeah. Uh, so I originally had a question about theory and practice, but I think uh, you've already addressed that. And so there's another question uh, that uh, came up uh, when I uh, supervised uh, PhD students. Uh, so we often talk about uh, the research question, and you better identify a research question that is interesting and important. My question to you is, do you think there is a trade-off between interesting and important? If, if there is, which one would you rather choose? Well, I guess the first one is, uh, I, the, first of all, there are some questions really important that are difficult to answer, like how, how are we going to manage climate change? Mm -hmm. um, um, and, and on the other hand, when I was a doctoral student, the first dissertation I ever saw from a, a University of Pennsylvania economics student was like coffee bean prices from uh, from uh, 1972 to 1977 in Colombia. I was thinking, oh my gosh, how how could you spend your whole your whole five years as a doctoral student looking at coffee bean prices over a five year period in one country? But then I just thought it really wasn't about that. It was you know it was about uh, showing off his econometric skills. So. So then I, then I got it. There, there, if you ask a question small enough, you can have a really precise answer. And economists also appreciate precision. So, uh, and then also to get out of a top 10 economics department, that's probably a pretty good strategy to do is uh, focus more on precision. Uh, I think ultimately, uh, given, given the fact that, that, that we are, uh, that, that our livelihoods are based on managers and managers to be, I think having too small a question is simply not good enough. Uh, you know, or, or a few people can do that in the profession, but if everybody does that in the profession, that would be the death of the strategy field. So, you, so you, 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 have to, you have to move to bigger questions. But, but the other thing I, I would say about that is about being rigorous and relevant is I think Herbert Simon to me has always been the exemplar of someone who's extraordinarily rigorous and highly, highly relevant. So, so for example, uh, he used to visit the Pittsburgh Plate Glass Company in Pittsburgh, and he used to go through the factory and look at all their inventory problems and look at their real world problems, and then he would think about them. And then he would actually provide contributions to, for example, linear programming and extensions of linear programming that would then be applied to the very problem that he would be observing in the factory. So, so once again, I, 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 I think that, that the heart of the strategic management field is bringing a bridge between your canonical problem, which is a real world problem, and using theory and categorizations and typologies to address 
the real world problems that people face. The artistry, of course, is choosing a canonical problem that, that it, to use Williamson's terms, is remediable, right? That is, you can do something about it and make it better. Not make it best, right? But make it better than where it currently is. So, yeah. I, so in other words, I, I think strategic management is about finding that sweet spot. I, the other way to say it, too, is it's a, there's a book called Pastor's Quadrant, right? So, so another, exam, another exemplar of someone who was scientifically rigorous and practically relevant was Louis Pasteur. Well, you certainly yeah. don't want to be in the you don't want to be in the other quadrant, right? Where you're neither rigorous nor relevant. You know, make sure <laughs> make sure you don't wind up in that one. Cinziana. Mm hi, -hmm. hi, Danisa. Hi, Joe. Hi, uh, what I, I want to ask you, what's the paper that you wish you had written 10 years ago and you didn't write either because you didn't think it was a big enough paper at the time or I don't know, because you didn't, it, you didn't connect it in, in a way that you would do now. But what's the paper that you wish you had written 10 years ago? The answer to that is, uh, uh, um, when I first started in the profession, Ann Hoff uh, recommended, who was a senior person at, at Illinois, she recommended follow your energy. And then she also gave me, I guess her name was Ann, Ann Dillard. I, she, she, I've never actually read any of her books. But, uh, but, but she wrote an essay about her works and she just said, give everything you have in the moment. So at every moment in my career, I, I never held anything back to provide into the next paper. I just, I just provided everything I had into every paper I ever wrote. And some of them aren't that good, but that's all I had at the time. You know, so by the way, sometimes in your career, you feel really physically and mentally great. And you typically do better work. And there can be other time because of life circumstances that are really draining you in different ways. And, and so some of those papers are just because that's where you're, where you're at physically and mentally at that time of your life, and they may, may not be as good. But, uh, but I, I would say that at every point in my, my career, I just followed my energy. And uh, I really can't say that I did, that there's any, I, I never, I never, uh, I never suppressed myself. Uh, other people suppress me. As a matter of fact, there, there is a saying that uh, I could not see uh, further because I, or I could see further because I was standing on the shoulders of giants, but I think a lot of times in my career, I could not see further because giants were standing on my shoulders. <laughs> so, but, 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 but I, I, I never self-edit. That gets me in trouble sometimes, by the way, with administrators at my school, as many people will know. But, uh, you know, like, like, like yeah. even now, I, 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 I am, I am vocal to friends, although I'm not vocal officially that I, I do think that with the pandemic, it's uh, it's much more preferable to be on online than it is to be in person. Because all the, all these kids are going to be not social distancing, and it's going to be very very dangerous for faculty. So, so I, I do speak. Matter of fact, now I'm recorded as speaking up about it. But. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to try to group the questions a little bit by topic. So uh, I'm going to go with Niklas now. Would you like to ask your question? Yeah, I guess it's a little bit of a follow-up question to the question that was just asked. Um, is there like any bigger thing that you wish you had done different in your research career? 
I think uh, it, in a really funny way, I, I think I think having a good memory, uh, it, and I work all the time, but in some ways having a good memory made me a little bit lazy. It made me lazy in the sense that whenever I'd be asked a question, I, I would go into the file drawer of my memory and say, oh, that was said uh, by Jacob Viner in 1935. I, I, was, I was always um, going to the quick, I was rushing to give the right answer to the question. And, I, 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 and I'm a little bit jealous of like my, uh, another William, uh, Williamson student, Jackson Nickerson, uh, for example, he, when I talk to him and co-author papers with him, he, he always starts with first principles. He talks about it. He works his way through, and then he solves the problem. And he, he, it's a very insightful way of doing. It. And of course, he starts with a canonical problem, just like his mentor taught him. So, um, in in some ways, uh, I wish I had trained myself better to not rely on memory, or and, and maybe that might be a so for every single person here. You might want to write down what you think your 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 strength is, and then think about ways in which your strength may not be helping you, right? Because you're going to rely on your strength, but that means that there is other skill. If you're skill based about your career, that can be uh, you're you're relying too much on your strength, but you're not giving enough attention to other skills. So I would say if I had to do over again, I would think more of, about trying to train my brain to think more analytically from first principles rather than just jumping to giving the five citations that are the correct citations to the current wisdom about the question. Rich, um, maybe you can ask your question now. <laughs> Thank you, Denisa. Um, uh, I had I had actually posted two questions. Which one do you want me to do? Right. So the last one, and then we can go towards the. Okay. If you can so, start with the last one, please. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So, um, you know, uh, Joe, since since you and I have uh, joined this field over the past several decades, the field of strategy research has grown just massively in both its scale and its scope. I mean, you can see that in the uh, the STR divisions domain statement, which reads almost like a State of the Union address, uh, if you will. And, uh, you know, SMJ's current uh, number of editors today, I think, is larger than the number of editorial board members when, we started, right? when I started, right. right? So what do you see as the consequences of all this growth in scale and scope? What, what are and what will be the consequences? Well, one thing I, I, I do worry about the field is uh, I think it's helpful to have for the for those who want to participate in that having once again getting back to what what like like the the Ramel Chandel and the Teese book that came out in '94 I, that book was very helpful because it provided some canonical problems and then you could choose to to work on one of those problems or you could do something else and that's fine. But it's nice to have a critical mass of people within a field that are that are sharing ideas and and being and being uh, once again true to the dependent variable and trying to collectively contribute to uh, addressing, uh, explaining and predicting that dependent variable, or or to have a shared some shared uh, phenomenon. 
uh, like it used to be we, we, we've had shared phenomenon together. I wouldn't say we necessarily had shared theories, but now we seem to have neither shared theory nor shared phenomenons, and that's, and that's, that's not good. So in some ways, I, I think uh, it would be kind of helpful for the, uh, the leaders of, the, of, the, of the, the strategic management journal now to almost come out with a paper that, uh, that's uh, similar to the, to the, to the uh, Thies Rimelt, or Rimelt uh, Schindel and Thies paper. So something to kind of define the boundaries of the field. Or, 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 or to give people the opportunity if they want to play in that space in a collective way and if that's what they want to do. In other words, in some ways it's kind of like, for, we, we can't have everybody at once doing a paradigm shift. Right. <laughs> right. We need, some, we need a, at least a core of people that are actually working in the, matter of fact, that, that's also healthy too because it, it gets the people who want to be mavericks, at least it, it, gives, them, it gives them a paradigm to complain about. Right, so, so, and so, so for those people who feel more comfortably being in normal science, uh, as Kuhn would define it, 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 provides, uh, it provides a space for people to flourish where that's where they would best flourish. And it also gives the opportunity for others to kind of be maverick. So, mm -hmm. so in some sense, uh, it, in some sense, the, the, the defined boundaries become the, like the reference point, right? And so, and then you can play either within the space or outside the space. And, and the other thing is, is I, I don't want to see us become like economics, where if you're not playing inside the space, then you are you are banished from the tribe, right? I don't I don't think that's very healthy for strategy, but uh, but at the same time, I hear you. I, I think uh, we run the risk of becoming too fragmented. Indeed. Right. It's. Rich, you want to? It's oh. it's going to be a big jump with the second question, but um. okay. My other question is on a completely different topic, which is, you know, what are your best tips for faculty recruiting? Because obviously, you know, Illinois has done a great job of building a world-class strategy group uh, in a place you wouldn't necessarily think would have a world-class strategy group. Right. So you must you must be doing something right. Can you share with us the secrets of your success? What's what's really weird about our strategy group is every single person in my group was my first pick. <laughs> That's currently in the group. Now, by the way, sometimes my first pick wasn't the first one chosen because we're very democratic, and so every person gets one vote. So I, I don't. So that's the other thing is the is uh, let the wisdom of the crowds be what it is. That's, mm. that's the first thing I would say. Um, I think another thing is what, what is common about every slot, like in particular, I would say like in the hiring of Arkady uh, Sakratov PhD from Purdue yes. or Melissa Grabner um, is, is that, uh, is that um, they're very public goods oriented. And a lot of times, the, uh, there was there was a substantial competition with others at the time. But I, I, I always, add, I guess the, the other guiding light was I always thought about what was best for the doctoral students. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good way to think about who you hire, and also to think about the portfolio mm -hmm. of people. That's good. I like that. And just if I can I squeeze in one last question, Denisa. Okay. Okay. So, 
Um, you talked earlier about you know your experiences in mentoring doctoral students. What's the most important piece of advice that you give to your own doctoral students? Well, I, I often say to what, what I've already mentioned. I, I, I said, be loyal to your dependent variable. So, 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 getting back to the first principle, I, I think I think Williamson was successful as a theorist because he had a connection. So, so the so the first thing I recommend to students is to find your find your problem that you're passionate about, and then think about the theories. But as I just mentioned, as a caveat to that that didn't work with one of the doctoral students. And then, so, so then you have a backup plan. And then the backup plan is then, tr then try the, uh, the Kathy Eisenhart, read this literature and find a gap in the literature. So, 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 so maybe putting the synthesis together, uh, Rich, is finding the strength of each doctoral student and trying to help them in the pathway that works best for that doctoral student. Great, thanks very much. I guess I should mention one, one thing too, is the, the, the one thing, uh, I don't care how, how slow a doctoral student is, but the one thing I get really bothered with is if they're lazy. So the only doctoral students I've ever, I, I ever turned down are those that I, you know, and I'll even tell them, I'll say the reason I'm not gonna be on your committee is you're so much better than, than you're just not putting in the effort. So, so, it, so I, 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 and I, so I, I think that's the important thing to have as a culture. And, and like, some people have more talent, some people have less talent, but to appreciate each person for who they are. And as long as you keep the culture that everybody, everybody knows that everybody knows within the culture that everybody is trying, trying to, to be as good a scholar as they can, I, I think maintaining. And also the other thing that really helps is having some good doctoral students. Uh, like, like I would actually say a doctoral student that really changed the culture at Illinois was uh, Yasin Kapoor. So she was there around, I think around 1996 to 2000 or something like that. So, uh, uh, so, so she really had kind of a, kind of a, that mentality of she wanted to, she wanted to do well. And uh, she kind of set the pace for the culture. And then the doctoral students who came in the next few years after that kind of took her lead. And then those doctoral students passed it on to so, so, so there's a momentum to having a good doctoral student. And you got to get lucky with a couple of doctoral students to get that ball rolling. And then a lot of the success comes with having a few good doctoral students who then pass it on. And I'm looking at so many doctoral students from Illinois mm -hmm. in the picture here that have kept, uh, kept it going. Yeah. Like, so you got, uh, yeah. you got uh, uh, Min Young Kim, and you got John Mosley, and Seth Carnahan, and Young Lee, and, and Sandra Cardor, and Julie, who's carrying the best. And you're only looking at the ones whose cameras have turned on. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, and Yasmin became one of your um, co-authors, long-standing co-authors, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I would also say for almost every co-authorship, the student will ask me. I, 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 I very rarely have ever asked the student. May I invite now some of the, your students to ask questions? I know uh, John has asked a question on the chat and then Seth. Yeah, so, um, so one of my, um, at the time it wasn't uh, a, a favorable memory, but it's one that um, really kind of stood me in good stead. So I once spent 
four hours in Joe's office uh, where he went through four pages of my writing. Um, and I was absolutely destroyed when I came out of that meeting. Like, I was so tired. Joe had so much energy for four hours and I was, I was a wreck coming out of it. But ever since that time, um, I have Joe's voice in my head when, when I write. It's like, Joe, you're kind of guiding my writing almost when, I, when, when I'm writing. So I'm interested to know who's in your head when you write. So is there anyone particular that guides your writing? I think the one person who comes to mind who influenced my writing that I noticed was a good writer, although somewhat dry and not particularly fun, but nevertheless a good academic writer was Alfred Chandler. And the thing I noticed about Alfred Chandler is, is the first sentence and the last sentence of every paragraph were the two most important sentences in that paragraph. So the first sentence kind of set the stage for what the idea was about and the last sentence kind of kind of uh, connected strongly to the first sentence and kind of addressed the kind of the puzzle or the question in the first sentence. The next thing I noticed about his writing is he repeated nouns. So often the noun that is in the last sentence of one paragraph becomes the noun in the first sentence of the new paragraph. And that, does, that, that in itself will help your writing cohere quite a bit because I, I, I too uh, often would have a tendency to jump I was anxious to get to the next idea. And sometimes I would leave the idea of that paragraph and then make a little bit of a leap where, of course, the reader doesn't get to see the thoughts that are going on in your brain, right? And so for them, it's like, how did, how did we get from one paragraph to the next? So, and then, and then the, other, the, the other thing that, that, that Chandler rarely, rarely does is he never has a this, that, these, or those that's not followed by a noun, right? Because every time you write this, I don't know when you're about you, but when I'm a reader, every time I write this from a writer, I go, what does this refer to? Yeah, that's taking me back <laughs> to those four hours in your office, Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, did, I did mention that with you. Yeah, you, you had a lot of this, that, these, and those <laughs> your writer. Yeah. Thanks. But you're, but you're a good writer now. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, I feel like the, the question that's most related now is uh, Buki's question. If you can just hold on for a sec, uh, Seth, would be uh, great. So uh, Buki, Buki Akinsami, I don't know if I'm saying your, yeah. So, so as background, Buki is one of my 87 students. So <laughs> Russ Kopp invited me uh, on the committee and it was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Joe. It was really great to have you on my committee as well. It was really nice to learn um, how you work. The question that I had is sort of piggybacking back on what Richard McAdock had mentioned about how the strategy field has grown in size and scope. And we know that even in the last two decades alone, the world of work has changed so much. But I hear senior scholars, people who are more advanced, saying all the time about how there are no new theories in strategy. Why aren't we coming up with all these amazing theories that I think in the session we had with Kathy yesterday, she was talking about how there were all these theories going on in the 1980s that gave her this spread of work, uh, 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 an amazing spread of theories from which she could choose when she was working on, on her dissertation. So my question is, what, what do you think is causing these? Because we have, growth in size, we have growth, uh, growth in scope, and we have so much change happening, even happening right now in the way in which we organize in firms. So what do you think is holding up this generation of new ideas or theory development in the field in general? I think the first thing I would say to young scholars that's 
critical is don't panic. And I think that really, really came to me. Um, I was uh, at the University of Syracuse a couple years ago, Kathy Maritan invited me and uh, we had a lunch conversation and uh, one of the assistant professors asked a question. And my answer was, uh, I think the Andy Vandeman book on engaged scholarship would be very helpful for addressing your question. And the assistant professor replied to me, I don't have time to read a research book. And that was the moment I realized that young scholars were panicking. Because if you don't have time to read a research book that's exactly what you need to learn <laughs> in order to get to the next step, then you're so worried about publishing that you can't even you can't even focus and concentrate on what you need to learn in order to publish. That's the first thing I would say. Um, and remember, the, the, the person there was a there's a there's a person who's a, does tile work for our house and is a, also a carpenter and a good friend. And his name's Mark Gerhardt. And one time he came over to our house and and my wife Jean gave him like ten different tasks to do that were very idiosyncratic carpentry work tasks and. For part of the day, um, I was working with him, and I was—I just marveled at his ability to solve problems. Like, was, like, like in some ways, his ability to solve problems—I would, I would, I would venture a guess—he was better at solving problems than maybe everyone on this, on this call right now. So, 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 so I, I asked him, "What? Why are you able to solve problems so well? Besides the fact that he had 30 years' experience." And his comment was, "Whenever he sees something new." A lot of the young carpenters panic, and he said, "When I see something new, I don't panic." So, so I, I, I think in order to concentrate, it, it, it's kind of having maybe maybe doing a little mindfulness to make sure that your inner self, be, you know, be the change you want want in the world, right? So the so the so the calmness and the and the clarity and the thinking have to come within, and then it can be brought uh, outward to the world. So that would be the one thing to say. I would say another thing uh, that's different for me than when I first started is, and maybe in some ways I'm going to mention Rich McAduck's name in a different way, is, 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 is when I first started, there were theorists like Williamson that I could build on. There was property rights theorists and so forth. And when I first came to the Academy of Management, my very first Academy of Management, I heard talks by, by uh, uh, Margie Petteroff and by Jay Barney, and there was this resource-based theory that was just starting. And I used to think to myself then, wow, this is going to be a really cool career where I constantly have people that I learn new theories from. And then, and then, uh, and then we did have another generation. So, so I think that the capability stuff came out, and, the, and I think Rich, Rich McAduck was part of that wave. So, so the theories continued for a while. But then I, 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 think, I think part of it is that people become so panicky about publishing that they don't step back and uh, develop to develop the theory. And the other thing I'll say about theory is theory is related to problems. So if you look, if you looked at the diversification literature in the beginning of the strategy field 1980s, that was born from the conglomerate merger wave of the 1970s, right? If you looked at Williamson's work on vertical integration, that was born from the problems he was facing at the antitrust division in the 60s. So, so nowadays we have automation, uh, we have uh, artificial intelligence. Um, what does that? What does, what is that going to mean for the workforce? 
Um, as a matter of fact, even 15 years ago, I, I attended a uh, talk in the education college because my wife Jean was in education, and it was actually uh, it was a uh, it was a person who was an expert on te technology, but from a Marxian lens. And his comment, even 15 years ago, was someday with technology, we're going to look at exploiting labor as the good old days, because he's going to say at, at some point it's going to be that there's no need to exploit any labor. Right. So, so, and, and, then the, and then the other issue, which I think is going to be for society itself of relevance is, is, is from what I'm reading is that, is that these technologies are kind of uh, part or they're taking out the middle, right? So a lot of the replacements are in the middle level managers. And now you're going to have a lot of manual workers on the, on the one hand and all the, the high end people on the other. So what's that going to do to uh, wage dispersion? And how are you going to build a culture of an organization where there's where there's these very different, it's almost like metro, the movie Metropolis, where you have the workers in the underground society and then the elite in the above society. So that's, uh, so there's gonna, so I think ultimately strategy is about corporate culture. And, and by corporate culture, I mean the incentives, the governance, holding things together is the glue that provides some coherence to a system. And I think that, I think there's a lot of system, and, and I think no one is better to deal with system strains within the business school and strategy faculty. So I would say uh, have an eye out for, 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 the, for the big problems that are still remediable, you know, uh, that, that you still can do something to make things better, but are, are systems related problems, because I really think that's, that's the niche of uh, that strategy is very strong. Did I answer your question somewhere along the way? Yes. Okay. Somehow. Thank you. <laughs> it was a beautiful answer, uh, Joe. It made me, uh, you know, ask so so many questions. Can we have more of uh, you? <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, I was taking notes. It's like, uh, that's my way of <laughs> synthesizing uh, what you were saying. I know we can watch the, uh, the, the, the YouTube video later, but... Uh, um, Okay, so then I'm going to refrain myself from commenting and, uh, and, and asking more questions. I'm going to let uh, Seth ask his questions. Please, Seth. Oh, sure. Yeah, thanks a lot, Denise. Joe, it's great to, it's great to see you virtually here. Um, so the, the question I had was, so you mentioned, you mentioned your dissertation defense uh, being a pretty memorable presentation, as it is for, you know, for most of us. I'm wondering if you had any memorable talks that you gave when you were an assistant professor, whether it was like a seminar at another university or an internal brown bag or a presentation at a conference or something, and just something that sticks in your mind, you know, whether good or bad, I'll let you interpret the word memorable, you know, however, however you see fit. Right. I guess, uh, uh, Probably the, I was invited to Colorado Boulder for a, an institutional economics conference in which uh, I was invited to, uh, to give comments on a paper by Williamson. So that was kind of a, kind of a thrill for me. Um, <laughs> I didn't pay attention to the timekeeper though. So I went a couple of minutes over. So, so, so to me, the real highlight was, I, I mentioned that to Williamson that I didn't look at the timekeeper. So I, I apologize for being a couple of minutes over and he said something very memorable to me. He said, he said, well, that wasn't very strategic of you. <laughs> so that's what, uh, that's what I remember there. So um, I guess also I, I, 
I, I enjoyed giving a, a talk at uh, Wisconsin-Madison last year, and I, I gave it on the uh, convict lease system, I guess, which is one night, and a couple other, and, and at Michigan too, and, and at Syracuse, and, uh, and I, guess, I guess that topic means a lot to me to learn about all the, I, and, my, and my big takeaway is this, is that, is that the convict lease system was leasing uh, prisoners out to corporations who were terribly exploited. So, so my, my big picture comment is, um, even if it's true that capitalism, capitalism is a necessary condition of freedom, I think it's demonstrably the case throughout history that capitalism is not a sufficient condition for freedom. And so there are, there are also many forces where, where there will be self-interest that, is not, uh, that is, is not caring for the, the people that are not in the in-group. So, so there is the exploitation there. By the way, in some ways, uh, you know, in transactions, cost economics is about exploitation too, although it doesn't use that language. But if you think maybe that's another reason it resonated with me is because, of, you know, if you have firm-specific human capital, then there's a chance of the uh, the holdup problem and the expropriation of the rents from labor. So I know that's a very different language, and I, and I know it's also a completely different setup of efficiency and economic logic. But but there but but it does resonate with the problem of if you don't have safeguards. And if you don't have foresight, then there are going to be those that are disadvantaged and, and taken advantage of. And so once again, it, it does bring me back into the, whether it's talking about the convict lease system, the stakeholder theory of the firm, or going all the way back to Williamson's canonical problem, it's all about, it's all about how do you set up a governance system that, that looks out for the disadvantaged. That's the spirit of the thing. Deb, uh, would you like to ask your question? The question you 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 mentioned in the system when you registered. Yes. Yes. So I am a, a HSC Paris uh, third year doctoral student. I had a, a question for you. Like these days in the in the strategy field, there's a, a lot of emphasis on on establishing the causal link, the, the what we call identification. Right. I mean, in your opinion, uh, is what is what is more important for advancement of theory, establishing the causal link that leads uh, from the uh, uh, IV of interest to the DV, or explaining the mechanisms through which they occur, in the sense that, I mean, the why question, why does the IV lead to the DV or showing specifically that the IV is uh, actually leading to the uh, DV. I mean, in these days, because there's a lot of emphasis on, on identification and, and there are papers published solely on identification. So just wanted to have your opinion on that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'll actually name a particular student from, from Illinois who, who, who didn't, didn't really have a strong uh, uh, it, it didn't, wasn't able to deal, had a bigger question and didn't deal with the endogenate problem as much in her dissertation with Maka Moe, right? And, and, and I think when she went on the market, perhaps the, then was kind of like uh, getting more towards the peak of focusing on endogeneity issues. So, so uh, but ultimately, 
uh, you know, she she was at uh, North uh, North Carolina Chapel Hill, hired and uh, and she and she her research was very strong on relevant problems and and dealing and dealing as best you can with with that bigger problem. I think another person who comes to mind is uh, Lourdes Sosa. So in Lourdes, uh, she basically will take a problem and then give four or five different possible, abductively, just give plausible stories about why we're seeing the relationship in the data. And then she'll, she'll work as best she can to eliminate all the other plausible uh, outcomes and then our, our, our plausible stories and then come up with the one that, that makes the most sense. So um, I, I'm, I'm hoping <laughs> that the field at some point, uh, the, I mean, the, in other words, at some point that, that, that we ask bigger questions and we admit that we can't, that we can't always solve the endogeneity problem. But on the, on the other hand, I, I, I think we'll become too much like labor economics or or uh, finance, for example, that, that have a, a, a almost, uh, the desire to be scientific is not necessarily is the, the most helpful thing for a manager who has real world problems and needs to get some decent counsel and advice about what to do. And, and if the caveat of the answer is in our field is that we're not, we're not like the airport book that says, you know, fix your firm in five easy steps. Right or, or or take this aspirin and your headache goes away, right? It, it may not be that level of control. Uh, but on the other hand, if we, if we only uh, seek to to provide um, to answer questions that we can have that level of precision, then we're moving perilously close to having dissertations like when I first entered economics of what are the coffee bean prices from 1972 to 1977 in Columbia, right? So, so that, so that the, and matter of fact, that even the, even the tail can wag the dog, where you, where you have your, you have your, 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 your exogenous shock comes first, and by gosh, I'm going to use, I'm going to use the latest methodology, and I'm going to figure out a context in which I can use it, right? But you know, but in the long run, that that is going to have an excessive focus of our field on questions that take us even further away from being relevant to management. And, and I will say once again that, as a matter of fact, I think Ranjay Galati talked about this as a, uh, as a social dilemma or a collective action problem. Like I think each individual, maybe to protect themselves, uh, is trying to be as scientific as they can. Uh, and, and, then, and then maybe that's another thing to say too, is it, is it, is it perhaps as a doctoral student, you might have a diversified portfolio. If you have two, for example, two major essays in your dissertation, why don't you have a? Why don't you make one one of your essays on, on uh, you know showing showing the fact that you know how to do research to deal with endogeneity problems and have the other chapter of your dissertation being something that uh, is a more relevant problem and having an approach that may not satisfy those who focus entirely on endogeneity but but also can be uh, very rewarding, uh, not not only for your research career but also when you walk into the classroom you'll be when you first start teaching executives, you'll have something to say to them. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. This is very powerful uh, <laughs> advice. Already resonates with me and uh, one of my students is here. She knows what I'm talking about. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> um, 
I guess uh, we are already uh, one hour and 50 minutes into the conversation. It's been um, such a pleasure, at least for, for some of us, it's a, you know, we have the luxury of continuing a conversation. Um, I hope it was inspiring for others as well. I'm not gonna close before um, giving you a chance to, to ask some last few questions here. So, um, if anyone wants to raise your hand, please. Uh, okay, we have Samina. Please, Samina. Joe, can I ask, you know, Rich asked, what is the advice you give your doctoral students? And I see there are so many also junior faculty on this Zoom call. Can you tell them what, what is the, you know, some advice you would give to them as they're approaching tenure, dealing with the tenure clock, you know, looking forward, in quotes, to letter writers, um, what would you, what advice would you give to them, to assistant professors? Well, the, I guess in, in some ways my own actions are a little bit counter the culture. I, I don't like, I don't like hierarchy, I don't like status, um, I just like, I just like learning and having fun and, and I guess I kind of go about my life doing that and then also I'm very proud of so many doctoral students from Illinois that uh, are open-minded and pluralistic and it really is the Illinois culture which is not necessarily the culture for everybody but I, I, I do think of, that makes me feel very happy but but I guess I would say in ready to go up for, uh, in preparing a couple of years before going up for tenure I guess you have to you have to appreciate the environment that you're in that's more status oriented and so forth so so you, you, you need to cultivate um, people from, that are tenured and preferably full professors at good schools because you need six or seven letters from people from those schools. And so uh, you have to have the, even before you go up for tenure, uh, you should be sending, you, you should, by the time you get to your third year or fourth year as a professor, you should have a pretty good idea who you're, who, who you would want to be your letter writers. And they have to come from good schools and they have to be full professors. And so the one thing I, when I first came to Illinois that my department had recommended to me, which I did, is uh, I, I sent out the papers to, uh, to the, the key people in the field. The thing I would also recommend you to do is be a little bit counter, don't send the PDF because that'll just get lost. That'll just get lost. Send, send a hard copy. I don't know, in a COVID year, send the hard I maybe don't appreciate it as much. But, but, but in general, the, the, the idea is, uh, maybe I'm a transactions cost person. When, you, when the person has a hard copy, by the way, they're not going to read it right away. They're just going to toss it. Maybe they'll toss it on their desk. And then maybe they won't look at it for the next six months. But by gosh, in the summer, they're going to say, what the heck is this on my desk? And then they're going to look at it, and then they might, in, a, in the leisure of the summer, they might actually start to read it. And uh, so, so lower the transactions cost for the people that you want to read your work, and and know who you want to send it out to. And then also, even the, the people that you cite within the paper that were influential in your thinking, they should be people. So, I, so when I was sending out different papers, I wouldn't necessarily send them to the exact same people. I would I would customize it to the people who I was speaking to in a conversation for that particular paper. Thanks, Joe. Can I ask you two, three fun questions before we let you go? 
Sure. Can, can I also just give a footnote to that? When I first started, I, I would I would send every one of my I got fifty copies free at Illinois. So I'd send it, and and the thing that I learned, much to my surprise, is when I sent the fifty out, I usually got six or seven back, and the people I would get letters back from would be Alfred Chandler, Oliver Williamson, Harold Demsetz, Bill O'Uchi. Um, so um, so a lot of uh, uh, Jim March. So the thing I learned from that was that the people who are great scholars are the ones that are engaged in ideas. So if you want to be a good scholar at a good school, and it's, if, it's the, if it's the external trappings, you can get all that by publishing. But, but the, I, I think the path to, to uh, being in greatness, and also it really helps if you enjoy it. So I remember mean, one time I asked Edith Penrose, the only time I met her, I asked her advice and her advice was have fun. Thanks, Joe. I also wanna thank you. Um, I've learned a lot about education and the prison system after talking to you and-, and Oh, cool. My own little research. Yeah, I'd love to chat with you about that sometime. Did you have another question? I did. So these are some fun questions I wanna ask about you. So what's your favorite dessert? <laughs> My favorite dessert, which I prepared and my brother helped me think a lot about, we discussed, I, I like haagen uh, vanilla Swiss almond ice cream because I like the combination of the high quality vanilla and the taste of chocolate and, uh, and an almond embedded within it. Well, that is a very specific answer. Now we're all <laughs> gonna go try that. Okay, thank you. Um, do you have a favorite author or book or a, or a genre of books that you like to read? Um, I, I actually like, uh, like not business history, but I, I really have come to enjoy uh, history biographies. Like right now, I'm, I actually got like five different used books on Andrew Johnson. And I'm going through each of those. And, and the reason I, I like reading the historians, a couple different reasons. One is they write more beautifully than most of us in the business school. So, because there's such competition. So to be a top historian at a top school is, is really extraordinary in terms of the ability. So first of all, it's a real joy to read those authors because they, they write with such coherence. It's really good for the brain too. After a steady diet of PowerPoints for a week, it's really wonderful to sit back and read someone who can help you wire your brain. I would say in the last four or five years, reading a lot of history books is literally transformed my brain. For a while I was getting really mush from too many years of just looking at the screen and I feel like I'm regaining, regaining my brain's youth by, by connecting the synapses by reading, reading beautiful history books. Uh, the second thing I learned from the historians is they triangulate tremendously. They'll, they'll read diaries, they'll, they'll read church records, they'll, 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 they'll uh, the, all the secondary sources, tremendous number of primary sources, and so their carefulness of what they do is just, uh, it's, really, it's really a lesson for, for all of us in, in triangulation. And my last question is, other than reading, which is one thing I asked you about, do you have any other hobbies or, I, I, like now I know you can sing like Elvis, there's something I didn't know, but are there some <laughs> other hobbies you pursue or I, I just, I wonder about all of you um, amazing scholars and mentors who must be so busy. What do you do to unplug or? I, I really, I really enjoy tennis. So I played 
a lot of Tennyson and Oh, Denise. Oh, I just kind of lost the picture. There. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm That's sorry. Okay. <laughs> there we go. We're back. So I can see you again. Yeah, so I really enjoyed tennis. And uh, now that I'm over 60, the last year or two, I've finally taken up uh, sports. I've, I've ignored most of my life, but I'm taking up golf. And uh, I quite enjoy it. But the, the, thing that, the thing that's seductive about golf is every once in a while you hit the ball beautifully. And even if you only do it once on the 18 holes of the golf course, it brings you back for the next week. Awesome. Thank you so much, Joe, for, on behalf of the division, for yeah. making the time to talk to all of us today. And also, th thank you, everyone, for uh, spending the time. I, I, I do know for a fact that it's much easier to talk than it is to listen. <laughs> so, so thank you very much. Thank you. Denise, I'll let you say goodbye. Yeah. Yes, um, so uh, I actually wanted to share this uh, beautiful picture. Can you guys see it? Can everyone see it or not? Yeah, yeah the whole Yes, so, um, you know, speaking about hobbies and knowing, having the privilege to, uh, to know Joe, I should say that usually the conversation with Joe is around the quad. This is the quad at the University of Illinois. And I think all of us had this amazing experience of walking around the quad and exchanging ideas yeah. with Joe. And it has always been um, uh, one of the highlights of, uh, of our PhD uh, life, you know, when you'd be down and Joe had this sense of, okay, now is the time to talk to a take student. A oh, yes, yeah. take a walk and have yeah. a conversation. He would also, I should say, put ha some hard copies in our mailbox with articles.